Um, I want to share a a brief word of uh, encouragement. This is not our text for today, but Psalm 34, 18 says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So to all my fellow Ohio State fans, God is near to you this this morning. Well, uh, we are, we're going to kind of jump right into this. Um, I'm super excited about the passage that we get to walk through this morning, and there's a lot to get through. So would you go ahead and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15? And as you are turning there, I want to challenge you with, uh, with two questions uh, that I want you to be thinking about. Number one is, what is the gospel? And the second one is, why do you believe it? We'll get to this third one in a minute. But what is the gospel? And why do you believe it? And so maybe it would be helpful to, to imagine uh, a friend or a family member, a coworker or a neighbor approaches you and says, hey, uh, Austin, I know that you go to church. I know that you say you're a Christian. I've been wondering these things. Can you tell me what is the gospel? But more importantly, tell me why do you believe that? There's a lot of questions that we can go about our lives not answering. There's a lot of things about scripture and theology and doctrine and prophecy, a lot of things that I don't know and maybe will never know and are okay to not know. That sometimes it's okay when someone asks you a question and say, you know what, I don't know the answer to that. But the one question that you should always be prepared to answer is why do you believe the gospel? And so this morning, we're going to walk through and answer these two questions uh, and this third one, what implications does, uh, does the resurrection have? Um, and this has been one of uh, the most important passages in my life over the last few months, uh, something that I believe God has really been challenging me with. Um, and so excited to uh, not preach this at you, but preach this uh, with you and some of the things that God has been challenging me um, get to share with you uh, this morning. Uh, so in the book of 1 Corinthians, we know that, that this is a church, this is a group of people who have a lot of issues. And so Paul goes along and, and he addresses some of these issues and he addresses uh, sexuality and he addresses um, uh, the, the sacraments and community and life with each other and how we treat people and, and always makes ties back to the gospel. And the final issue that Paul addresses is the resurrection. And so one of the benefits of getting to do kind of this standalone uh, series is, you know, we're not walking through the whole book of 1 Corinthians. We just get to skip to the good part here uh, in chapter 15, all right? And not to say that the rest of it's not good, um, but we're, we're really skipping to the heart of Paul's message to the Corinthians. And so we're going to answer these three questions. This is our outline for today. What is the gospel? Why do you believe it? And what implications does the resurrection have for our lives? All right, the first two are going to go pretty quick, really spend the majority of our time on point three, uh, but I'm going to start reading in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse one. And Paul writes, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. All right, so question number one, what is the gospel? And I realize that there's a lot we could talk about, 
Uh, There's whole books and conferences and sermon series devoted to this question. But Paul gives us a pretty succinct and I think pretty good answer here. He says the gospel is this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And not only did Jesus die, not only was he raised, but this is actually exactly what the Bible said he would do. This is exactly what the Old Testament prophesied, that just as the scriptures say, Jesus has done it, this is the good news that we get to put our hope in. All right, that's point one, all right? Uh, no, I know you guys are thinking like, man, he got through that one in five minutes. We're going to be out of here in time for brunch. Uh, point two, okay? Uh, question number two, why does Paul believe it? All right, we're going to keep reading here and uh, going to start back in verse four, 1 Corinthians 15, verse four. Paul keeps going. Uh, Go to back up a little bit. Verse four, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one ultimately born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Why does Paul believe the gospel? He gives us three reasons here. He says, number one, the tomb was empty. The tomb that they buried Jesus in three days later, appeared empty with no corpse, with no dead body, with no alive body, nothing inside. Number two, he says, the eyewitnesses. And he lists a couple, and he says, he says, Cephas and James and the 12 and myself. He says, but there were 500 people who saw Jesus. Most of them are still alive. This is what he's saying. He's like, hey, there were people who witnessed this. If you want to ask them, go do it, because they're in your town. They're living right down the road, And finally, Paul says the third reason that I believe the gospel is because I've experienced a changed life. And Paul is giving us here a logical approach to the validity and truth of the resurrection. All right, and all my engineers said amen. Right, that Paul is, this is not strictly emotional. And, And if I asked you, why do you believe the gospel? We'd probably get a lot of different answers. So, uh, some of you would say, hey, I've, I've seen it work in my own life. Some of you would say, I've seen it in, in the lives of my friends. And I've seen someone go from, from a wretched sinner to a new life in Christ. And that is evidence enough for me that this is, that this is real. Um, some of you might say, it just, it just works. Right? That we, and, and, and that's true. That when we look at philosophy and psychology and when we study the mind and human relationships and then we look at the way that God calls us to live in Scripture, we see that Uh, that God's commands oftentimes uh, line up with science that wasn't even around 2,000 years ago. And and, and we see these these truths, and we see that it works, and we see that it's real. But Paul is saying, hey, there's there's a logical, historical argument for the New Testament resurrection. German theologian uh, Wolfhart Pannenberg said it this way. He says that the early Christians could not have possibly preached 
the resurrection of Jesus publicly and successfully if the tomb were not empty and hundreds of witnesses didn't exist. That there's historical proof that if, if there weren't witnesses, if there weren't an empty tomb, the apostles would be like, hey, Jesus is raised from the dead. And he'd be like, no, he's not. The tomb's still sealed. No one else saw it. But there's claims that back this up. And Paul, Paul says he's giving this argument to what he believes is true. And what's, what's cool is that you see a very similar argument in Acts chapter 26. And a couple different times in Acts, Paul gets to share his testimony. And at this moment in time, in Acts chapter 26, he is, he, he's doing ministry and he's brought in, he's kind of drug off the streets and brought in before Herod Agrippa, who is the, the grandson of the Herod uh, who tried to kill baby Jesus. Um, he's king of, of Judea. He's brought him before Herod Agrippa and Festus, the governor. And Paul begins to kind of share his testimony and talk about, hey, this is what happened in my life. This is what God is doing through me. Um, and they're kind of sitting there. They're like, I don't know if this is true, believe it or whatever. Uh, and then he gets to this point and he brings up the resurrection. And Festus says to Paul, Paul, you are out of your mind. All right, that's literally what he says. He says, Paul, you're out of your mind. How can you possibly believe that a dead man rose from the grave? And Paul looks at Festus. He addresses Festus first, and he says, I'm speaking true and rational words. And then he looks at King Agrippa, and he says, you know this to be true because you have the same evidence that I have. You know the tomb was empty. You've heard of the people who have saw it. You've seen the, the testimonies, you know, and he's talking to two men who knew the type of person he was before and now has this radically changed life. And Paul says, the only logical explanation for the empty tomb, for the eyewitnesses, for my changed life is that Jesus is real. That the gospel is true. That Jesus was who he says he was. And Paul does not believe in a savior that he wants, he believes in a savior that is true. And we often kind of get wrapped up when we want to follow a Jesus who fulfills us, but Paul did not follow Jesus firstly because he fulfilled him. In fact, when you look at Paul's life, Jesus was a threat to nearly every way Paul was living. Jesus was a threat to his righteousness, to his worldview, to his comfort levels, to his job and, and, and his house, to his ability to make his own decisions. But Paul's like, he says here, and what he's arguing in 1 Corinthians 15, he's like, I had to believe. The evidence was, was so great. I had to believe this was true. And after realizing how true Jesus is, did he realize how fulfilling life with him would become? And I think Paul has this right, that only when we realize how true the gospel is can we realize how life-giving it can be at the same time. That if we create a Savior who satisfies and fulfills our own desires, ironically, he will never fulfill us. But Tim Keller puts it this way. He says that you need a Lord who is not the product of your needs, but who is true. And ironically, if he is true, if he is the God who died for your sins, then he will be the most fulfilling Lord you could ever hope for. So Paul starts off this chapter and he says, hey, here's the gospel. Here's the good news. 
And what makes it really good is that it's true. What makes it really good is that Jesus is who he says he is. He did what the Bible says he has done. But then Paul transitions, and he begins to walk us through this truth that if Jesus really did raise from the dead, if there really is good news and it's true, then this has some pretty big applications for our life. Not just spiritually, but, but temporally, right? Like right here, right now, this should affect how we're living our lives. Last week, uh, Pastor Lucas's first point is what you believe matters. Because what you believe, and specifically last week we were talking about, about end times and heaven and hell, but what you believe affects how you change your life. And Paul plays, Paul plays into that here. And so I'm going to read the next 20 verses in this passage. Um, it's a little bit long, but what I want you to notice uh, and, and look for here are what are the implications of a true resurrection? All right, Paul says a number of times, he says, if the resurrection is true, then this, right? And he says kind of the, the inverse several times too, if the resurrection is not true, then this, all right? So I'm gonna read this, Pay attention to those. Um, we're going to kind of go through a few of them and really spend our time uh, focusing on one in particular. But this is how Paul keeps preaching the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of the dead. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only... We are of all people to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until, all, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected to put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under his feet, that God may be in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as it is right, and do not go on sinning. 
for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. I know there's a, a lot going on there. It's a really rich passage we could spend a lot of time on, but let's just kind of go through briefly. What are some of the things Paul says? If the resurrection is true, and conversely, if it's not true, what does this mean for our life? First, he says, if the resurrection is not true, then our preaching is in vain. Then everything we say is a lie. And if you look at what the New Testament apostles are preaching, they're not preaching, hey, follow, follow Jesus and he will give you great joy. Follow Jesus and he'll give you great peace. Follow Jesus if you want to get to heaven. Their, their, their sermons, look at, at Peter and Paul and Stephen, the message they're proclaiming is that Jesus is the Messiah because he raised from the dead. Like the hinge point of every sermon in the New Testament is the resurrection. And Paul says if the resurrection is not true, then our preaching for the last however many years has been useless. It's all a lie. Paul says if the resurrection is not true, then we're misrepresenting God. Then we are trying to follow a God, trying to tell other people about him that we don't even know what he's really like. If the resurrection is not true, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. That there's no forgiveness, there's no grace, there's no life after death. But conversely, if the resurrection is true, then Jesus is only the first to be raised from the dead. That we will get to be raised with him. That we will get to be made alive. That this resurrection reverses death. That we have the opportunity to die to ourselves every day and say, God, I will die to myself and choose to live for you. Paul says, if the resurrection is not true, then we should just go and live and drink and be merry and happy and do whatever. Because Christians are the most to be pitied. Several years ago, there was a, a Catholic monk in, uh, in, in Italy. Uh, there was a certain uh, sect of Catholicism where their, their monks, after they surrendered their life to uh, service to the Lord, would commit themselves to a life of uh, silence and solitude. And so after a while, this TV reporter got, got a hold of one of these monks and um, just was asking him questions about, about his life and his service to the Lord. And, and he phrased this question to, uh, to this Catholic monk. He said, what if you were to realize at the end of your life that atheism is true and there is no God at all? Tell me, what if that were true? And this was his response. Uh, the, the monk answers this and he says, holiness, silence, and sacrifice are beautiful in, them, in themselves even without promise of reward, I still will have used my life well. I don't know if you, if you guys have thought about this. Like, like, what if we get to the end of life and we find out that this really isn't true? Like, what if we get to the end of life and we find out, like, Christianity, like, it wasn't true, there really was, you know, maybe there was a guy named Jesus, but, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't God. Like, what if we were able to find that at the end of our life? Um, and, and I've thought about this, and I kind of come to a similar conclusion that, hey, you know, there's, like, there's a lot of good things in life. You know, I, I, look at, I look at things like, you know, hope and love and peace and, peace and patience, like they're, they're, they're great virtues. You know, that joy and reconciliation and, you know, obedience, that there's like, there's some great societal benefits and philosophy and science, like they would agree, like these are, these are good 
good things. And I'm like, hey, this, this isn't a bad answer. But then we get to this text in 1 Corinthians, and I read Paul saying, if the gospel, if the resurrection is not true, then Christians are above all others to be pitied. If the gospel is a lie, then we are to be pitied more than anybody else. So what's Paul seeing that this monk doesn't? What's Paul seeing that I so often fail to see? Why does he say this in verse 19 that we are at most to be pitied? And the answer for Paul, I believe, is this, was that for him, the Christian life was a life of sacrifice and suffering. A life of freely chosen suffering and high-level risk-taking almost continually. And Paul's saying, if there's no resurrection, then I've suffered for nothing. Flip over with me. Keep your spot here in, in 1 Corinthians 15 and flip to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. All right, I was going to just talk about this, but I think this is, this is too good to not spend a little bit of time in. 2 Corinthians 11, I'm going to start in verse, in verse 23, all right? And Paul begins to list off some of his sufferings, some of the trials and torments that he has gone through uh, in his life. So 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23, and Paul asks, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman, all right? So he at least recognizes here that what I'm saying is a little bit, might sound a little bit crazy. He says, I have far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. All right, let's just, let's just think about this for a second, okay? Countless beatings, often near death. Like, I, I keep track of every time Xanth beats me in like euchre or sequence. Like, like, I don't like losing. I keep track of when, you know, when, when I lose. Paul, he's like, hey, I, I've been beaten so many times, I've lost count. I'm like, really, Paul? Have, have you really lost count? Like, if I get, like, I keep track of, like, stupid stuff like this. If I get beaten for the gospel, that's like, I'm putting that on Facebook, and that's, like, my Instagram bio, and I'm writing articles about it. Like, I'm making a note of that. And Paul's like, no, I, I, I have been, I have suffered, I have been beaten so many times that I have lost count. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. His whole life was dangerous, right? Like we, Paul, we get it. And toiling and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and in thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Flip back to our text in 1 Corinthians. And this is what Paul's saying. If there's no resurrection, if this is a lie, I've been beaten for nothing. I've almost died countless times, and it was all for loss. I was shipwrecked, and I was adrift at sea 
thinking there's, there might be no way I ever get home when I could have been back on my couch hanging out with my friends. I've spent my whole life in danger when I could have kept a nice, cushy, comfortable job living in comfort. And consequently, he says, hey, if there's no resurrection, we're better off just eating and drinking and, and dying tomorrow. But Paul's, Paul's has this realization. He's like, at the end of his life, if the resurrection is not real, Paul's not going to wake up and just say, you know what? It's just a beautiful life anyways. I had a lot of fun, and I loved my family, and, and my life was, was pretty good, and I had a great time. He would not have said it was just this grand, beautiful life. And the disturbing part is, I'm not sure I could answer that way. John Piper writes this about this, this text. He says, when Paul says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, he does not mean let's all become leechers. He means there's a normal, simple, comfortable, ordinary life of human delights that we may enjoy with no troubling thoughts of heaven or hell or sin or holiness or God if there is no resurrection from the dead. And what stunned me about this train of thought is that many of the professing Christians seem to aim at just this and call it Christianity. So here's my question for today. Is the trajectory of your life in ministry toward comfort or toward suffering? And this isn't a guilt trip, uh, number one, because I'm, I said at the beginning, I'm in, this, I'm in this with you guys, that these are questions that God has been challenging me with. Uh, and secondly, on, on our own, we are creatures of comfort, right? Like we move to safe neighborhoods, we buy nicer houses, uh, we buy air conditioners, you know, and if our car ever, like the car air conditioner ever breaks down, it's like that is true suffering, right? Uh, like that's, that's what we think, you know? Um, we wear, um, anybody in here own a pair of Hoka's? Anybody like Hoka's? Yeah? Why, why do you like them? Not because they're cool, right? Not because they look good, right? Because they're comfortable, right? Like, we love comfortable pants. Like, every pair of pants I own now are stretchy, okay? Like, we love living a life of, of comfort. Like, we are creatures of comfort. And so, if we're going to answer this question, if we're going to be like, Paul, I want to embrace suffering, I want to embrace uh, hardships for the gospel, we need an outside force to help us take that step. So why does Paul embrace suffering and not only embrace it, right? right? Like It's not like Paul just says, you know what, these things just keep happening to me on accident uh, and I, I just have a good attitude. Like Paul chooses it. Paul chooses to step out and put himself in a position where he knows my life's on the line. Paul chooses to put himself in positions time and time again where he knows this is going to be uncomfortable. Why does he do that? I've got a whole list of uh, verses up here. Um, I'm not going to run through all these. Um, if you want to take a picture and you know, maybe, maybe run through um, later, I'll just kind of go through a couple of them. But in John 15, Jesus tells his followers, hey, they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. I suffered, you're going to suffer as well. In Acts 9, uh, this is where, where Paul begins to, like this is the beginning of his testimony where he begins to follow the Lord. Um, and Jesus tells Ananias, I will show Paul how much he must suffer for my name. 2 Timothy 3, I, th I think is a cool one. Um, Paul, Paul basically says, um, I'm kind of paraphrasing this. He says, you know that I've been persecuted 
In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. And God's universal purpose for all Christian suffering is this, that we would become more content with God and find less satisfaction in ourselves and in the world. And I know I've, I know I've shared this quote before, um, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer said uh, that, if, that if dependency is the highest Christian virtue, then anything on your life, good or bad, that would cause you to become more dependent on him is ultimately a good thing. And Paul's, Paul's echoing this in, well, Paul's not echoing, uh, Paul said it first, and in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, that, yeah, if, if, you, if you want to live a godly life, you have to go through hardships. You have to go through persecution. You have to suffer. You have to develop dependency on your Savior. I'm going to skip down to Colossians 1.24. And this is what Paul says here. He says, now I rejoiced in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. I'm going to read that again because you're like, did I hear that right? Paul says that I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his church. Now, you might be like me and you read that and you're like, Filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, that sounds, that sounds like heretical. And what Paul is not saying, Paul's not saying that, that Jesus' atonement was left unfinished. He's not saying that there is anything in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that has yet to be completed. His work on our behalf is, is done, it is finished, he died once for all, he resurrected. That Paul is not trying to complete the saving, atoning grace of Jesus. But I think this is what Paul's saying. I'm going to say it, and then, and then we're going to look at another verse, um, and kind of a parallel verse, and why I think this is what Paul means. Paul's saying this, that he suffers for the church. He endures hardship and pain and chooses suffering. So the world might see a visible tangible, touchable glimpse of what Christ has done for us. There's a parallel passage in Philippians chapter, chapter 2, verse 30. Uh, and so this is what's going on in Philippians chapter 2. Paul's writing this from prison, and the church, uh, the group of people at Philippi, they love Paul. They have this desire, this affection uh, for, for Paul and his ministry, and so they send Paul uh, gifts and greetings and love to Paul, and they send it through a man named Epaphroditus. All right, and when Epaphroditus gets to Paul, he is like totally worn down. He is to the point of death, just beaten and exhausted. And Paul says, he talks about, he writes back to the Philippians, and he's like, he says, you need to honor and adore this man, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life, to complete what was lacking in your service to me. All right, go ahead and put that next slide up here. So, Bible study 101, if you see the similar, this is the same Greek word in Colossians as it is in Philippians, filling up what was lacking, completing what was lacking. 
So we have a similar idea going on between uh, Paul and the church at Philippi, but also Paul and his Savior Jesus. And what's happening while Paul's in prison is that the Philippians loved Paul. They had a gift for him, but they're miles away. And what's missing in this relationship was someone to show Paul that love. Someone to collect the gifts and take them to, to Paul. Someone to convey the love that was given. And when Epaphroditus arrives, Paul is made known of the love and the gifts from this church. Epaphroditus is a messenger to complete the gift between the church and Paul. In the same way, Paul realizes that Christ loves his people, that he lays down his life for his people, that he offers hope and life and grace, but someone has to take that message to those who Christ died for. And what's lacking in Christ's Christ's work is not anything that Christ has done, but the messengers to share that truth and hope and love with the world. What's lacking is a visible, tangible, touchable display of Christ's suffering and love for his people. And Paul says that when I get to suffer, I get a small chance to display God's glory and love to those he desires. Do we understand the implications of this? Man, it's, it's so easy to tell a friend or a neighbor or coworker or to put on Facebook, hey, Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus gave his life up for you. And, and, and faith comes through hearing. And so we have to say it, right? Like, it doesn't come through actions alone. We have to make that evident. But to see someone who loves you die for you, to see someone give up their life, embrace and choose suffering, this is what Paul is offering to his listeners. To open up your home to your neighbors, to give your weekends and your time to serving others, to, to be the phone call or the person who shows up at the hospital when no one else is around. To be there, to be constant, to be faithful, to give much of yourself, to expect nothing in return and say, God, my time, my resources, my money, my house, my family, my everything is yours. Let me use it to love other people. And when you lay your life down and choose hard things, God opens doors for relationships, to share the gospel, to tell, you, tell someone Jesus loves you, and to tell them in a way that they've never heard it before because your life looks like something they've never seen. And to Paul, suffering is not an accident. It's not a situation that he gets thrown into. It's a strategy. That it's not the result of the Great Commission. It's how Paul is fulfilling the Great Commission. And Paul exhibits the suffering of Christ by suffering himself for those he is trying to win. For these reasons, do we choose hard things? Do we embrace suffering? Do we freely choose sacrifice? Does this have application to church and ministry? Yeah, I, I hope so. I hope it does. 
I hope that we'd be like, yeah, I'll give my time. I'll give my resources. I will, I will give of myself. But I'm not just talking about this ministry that you're involved in or what you're doing here right now. I'm talking about your, your whole life. And man, if the resurrection is true, man, does this change how I want to live my life? That if the resurrection is true, I'm okay living in a smaller house. I'm okay not going on every vacation I want to go to. I'm okay making less money than I wanted. I'm okay opening my house to strangers and, and saying, you know what, I got to spend more money on my food budget than I would if it was just me and Xanth. I have to clean the house more. I got I to tidy up more. That There's projects that will go unfinished, trips that will never, never be taken, earthly dreams that were, will never be realized. Don't get as much rest as I wish I did. Most of our date nights are spent at sporting events and youth group. That if the gospel is true, life often gets harder. And there's a trend that, that's been going on, you know, maybe the last 10 years or so, or, or maybe, maybe more, I don't know. That, man, Christians are just so busy. And there's been articles and books written and, and sermons given about, you know, Jesus wasn't that busy, Paul wasn't that busy, we need to slow down, we need to rest. Jesus never calls us to busyness. And, and I, I agree, I don't think Jesus calls us to busyness. But he does call us to sacrifice. He does call us to suffering. He does call us to lay our lives down. And there's this really cool story. I'll close with this. <clears throat> At the, the end of the book of John, chapter 21, Jesus is resurrected, and he shows up on the beach, and he's having breakfast with Peter. And it's after Peter denies him, and, and so Peter denies Jesus three times, and, and so Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? He's like, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I love you. Yes, I know you. Jesus, you know that I love you. And so Jesus says, Peter, he says, feed my sheep. Right? And that's a lot of times like where we kind of leave it is like this missional call. Hey, if you really love me, go out and do something. But right after that, Jesus looks at Peter and he says, kind of a weird quote, but this is what he says. I'm paraphrasing. He says, Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and go wherever you wanted. That your life was yours. You used to do whatever you wanted to do. But there will come a day when you're old, when your hands will be stretched, when someone else will clothe you and take you to where you do not want to go. And then in parentheses, uh, Peter, um, or John writes this. In parentheses it says, in this way, Jesus showed him how he would die for God's glory. And then Jesus looks at Peter and he says, follow me. Now this was not the first time that Jesus told Peter to follow him. He said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me and I'll give you life. Follow me, I'll give you keys, keys to the kingdom. Follow me and I'll, I'll, I'll make you the head of the church of Jerusalem. Follow me and I'll, and I'll do all of these things. And for many of those times, Peter never did. But now he says, Peter, you're going to die for my glory. Follow me. And Peter does. 
Not because he benefits. Not because he has earthly gains from this transaction. But because Peter could look at the gospel, could look at the resurrection, and proclaim, I know this is true. And if it's true, then it has some pretty big implications for how I live my life. So three, three questions, things that I've been asking myself uh, that we will we'll close on. Number one, are others worried about the type of life you live? And, and, and this, this is what I mean by that. When you're, when you're talking to people, when you are looking at them and I say, hey, have you considered following Jesus? Um, do they look at you and say, I can never do that? I see the way you sacrifice. I see the way you give your money. I see the way that you love other people, the way that you, you lay down your lives for others, and I can never do that. And I, I want my friends to be scared of the life that I'm living and for them to look at me and say, I can never do that. And to have the opportunity to say, you know what, I can't either, but I know someone who can. That not my strength, but Christ's in me enables me to live a life of suffering and sacrifice that I could never do on my own. Number two, is there something hard in your life or ministry that you've been putting off? And man, if we're good at one thing, it's justifying our actions, right? You know what? Oh man, like I know I should reach out to this person. I know I should be living more sacrificially. But I think God also wants me to do this. I know I should be more generous with my money, but God also wants me to be a good saver. I know I should open up my house uh, to, to more people, but then what if my kids go to bed a little bit later? Right, like we, we justify these things that sometimes we really think God wants us to do. Number three, would the lifestyle you live be utterly foolish and pitiable if there was no resurrection? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. God, we thank you for uh, the grace that you have shown to us. God, we, we recognize that, uh, that we have done nothing to, to earn you. We've done nothing to deserve you, um, but that you uh, made the first step and chose us. God, we thank you for the gift of the resurrection, for, uh, for the witnesses, for the empty tomb, uh, for stories like Paul, and uh, for the the testimonies that we can look at and say, God, this is, this is true. God, would you help us to believe that? Would you solidify these, uh, these beliefs in our heart? And God, would you, uh, would you lead us in a life of sacrifice? Would you live, lead us to a life of suffering? God, would you continue to uh, just reveal to me uh, what hard things to say yes to for the sake of your kingdom? God, you are so good, and we are grateful for uh, all you have done for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.